Hey there, welcome to night school. Got a Sunday night walk on my hands here, on my feet. No, I'm walking on my hands, that's what I'm doing. I'm walking on my hands, holding my phone with my feet. It's a very foggy one, which is nice. I do, you know, I always appreciate a good fog. A good fog. There's a bunny rabbit in the neighbor's yard. But, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know how there, there are these, these cultural battles that take place, or, you know, they might be political, they might be social, or both, hard to differentiate them. But, uh, how, like, once those battles are lost, people forget that it was even a battle. Like, younger generations, for one. But even the people who are around tend to forget about it. A good example is the seatbelt issue, seatbelt laws. I'm not going to launch into that whole thing again, but I will. I do see this response sometimes. I'll, I'll see or hear an argument about the VAC mandates, and usually younger people will respond and they'll say, "Well, you wouldn't be saying that about seatbelt laws, would you?" And it's so funny to me because they don't even know that that was a debate. They don't even know that older generations of conservatives and libertarians, basically anybody who values personal freedom and autonomy, hated seatbelt laws. And that was a big debate. But because they were born after seatbelt laws went into effect, and I mean, I, I looked this up actually because I wanted to know, and seatbelt laws went into effect on January 1st, 1986. So I was technically born before seatbelt laws. <laughs> I had four days. I had four days, four beautiful days before seatbelt laws went into effect. But I wouldn't even know that that was a debate myself if I didn't have a dad who I realized at a young age, oh, he has an issue with seatbelt laws. He didn't break it all down for me. You know, my dad's not the kind of guy who says everything up front. But I, you know, being born when I was, four days before seatbelt laws went into effect, by the time that I was conscious, when I was, let's say, five, six years old, you know, by then it was just well accepted. The battle had been lost. Everybody has to wear seatbelts. I was born and raised and socialized in a world where I knew that you have to wear seatbelts. I never even questioned it. But I do remember riding in the car with my dad... And as soon as I was conscious, I remember saying to him, I was like, oh, dad, you're not wearing your seatbelt. Why aren't you wearing your seatbelt? Not harassing him, but more just curious. And he was like, oh, you know, I don't, they can't make me wear that. You know, I don't, basically he didn't break it all down. Like he didn't explain that this was a philosophy of his, but even at a young age like that, just his response, I was able to infer that, oh, he doesn't like the fact that they're trying to tell him what to do. And seatbelt laws are interesting in particular. I said I wasn't going to go into it, but seatbelt laws are, are interesting in particular because that truly is just your own safety. Yeah, if you fly through the windshield, somebody's going to have to clean up and they're going to see something horrific maybe. Maybe there's a, a very slim chance that you're going to get launched into somebody. But for the most part... Seatbelt laws pertain to your own safety. 
Whereas the VAC mandate, you know, the, the argument there is that it impacts other people, that you could get somebody else sick. Not true for seatbelts. Seatbelts, it very much involves your own safety. And if it's your car, you know, because in the same way that, uh, you know, you have the right to tell somebody to take their shoes off in your house. I think that the driver of a car has the right to make everybody in the car wear a seatbelt. I think when something is yours, when you're the captain of the ship, you have that right. You know, maybe there's an argument to be made against that. I'm sure there is. I could make it myself. But just on a gut level, that makes sense to me. When you're the driver, when it's your car, it makes sense that you can tell other people, strap it on. Don't take that out of context, but... Uh, you know, and you know when I brought this up before, Nick G, who sometimes listens to this show, an old friend of mine, he had emailed me and he said, "Well, one of the big issues of seatbelt laws is insurance companies. A lot of that was influenced by insurance, and I don't know all the ins and outs. On a basic level, that makes sense to me. It's not, and he wasn't arguing in favor of this." You know, I, he's not a guy. He's not a guy who I don't. You know, I think he understands personal autonomy better than most people. But you know, I'd never thought of that. I hadn't, I didn't think about the influence that insurance companies might have on influencing seatbelt laws. Again, I don't know the ins and outs of that, but on a basic level, it, it makes sense that they would have an interest in that. But now we're in a time where nobody even thinks about it. And, you know, in addition to my dad, when I was a little bit older, you know, my biological grandfather, my mom didn't know him, her dad, but he was a journalist, he was an editorialist, and we got copies of his editorials that he wrote in, I think, the 70s and probably early 80s. And he was a libertarian, and a huge amount of his editorials were about seatbelt laws at the time. But if it weren't for my dad, realizing that my dad had a stance on that, because as a little kid, when I was like, Dad, you're not wearing your seatbelt, it wouldn't have even crossed my mind that there was more to it than him just not wanting to wear his seatbelt. It wouldn't have crossed my mind that that was part of a philosophy he had and that there was ever even a time where you didn't have to do that. Like, I thought, oh, dad's just, I don't know, lazy. I don't know what I thought. But it just wouldn't have crossed my mind that there was more to that. That There were people out there who disagreed with seatbelt laws when they were imposed. And they continued to believe that. And it was political. And then seeing my biological grandfather's writings on that subject, I'm like, oh yeah, this was a big debate at the time. A libertarian like him was very bothered by the fact that they were going to control your personal bodily autonomy in that way and penalize you for not doing it. But there's a lot of people who are my age who wouldn't know that because they grew up when I did where you just took for granted that, oh, you have to wear a seatbelt. Nobody argues with it. That debate isn't going on anymore. Because that's an important thing, too. I don't know if that was on the news. I don't know how well covered that was. But the fact that my journalist grandfather was writing about it tells me that it was probably it was probably in the air. 
But five years later, it's not like they were talking about that on TV still. That battle had been lost. And because the battle over seatbelt laws had been lost, you weren't going to see it given any attention. It was just understood that this is how things are now. But then you, flat, you flash forward to now, and you, have, you now have multiple generations who have only ever known seatbelt laws to exist. They don't even question it. And so when something like the VAC mandates come, come up, they just say, well, you wouldn't say that about seatbelt laws, would you? Because they can't even fathom the idea that anybody ever had a problem with that. Meanwhile, they did. It's just that that battle was lost and nobody debates it anymore. And if, if a conservative politician were to make that part of their platform, he'd probably be laughed out of the room. If a politician were to come out and say, you know, we, we really need to reconsider seatbelt laws. We need to discuss this again. People would probably laugh him out of the room, so they don't even bother. They just accept that they lost ground on that argument. But when people lose ground and when the battle ends, people just move on and they live life accordingly. And what got me thinking about this was you know, the, the Jerogan debate rages on and it gets worse and worse. And now he issued a couple of videos recently. One of them was just kind of explaining what he does and why it's important for him to be able to have conversations. Which that one was good. That one seemed to be effective. He didn't apologize, he didn't give up ground. He just said, hey, this is what I do. I'm gonna make an effort to, you know, basically take responsibility for what I do, but at the same time, I don't think people actually understand what I even do on my show. But then he issued a more recent one, because the thing is, the goal isn't to correct his behavior the goal isn't to make him more responsible for what he says and does or who he has on. The goal you know, is to break him. And that's evident from the way this whole thing is being handled, you know, where the goal is clearly to break the man, is to discredit him fully. And that's clear because, you know, the misinformation tag is not very effective. That's been very clear for a while. That as they've escalated the rhetoric about misinformation, disinformation, trust the experts, that's not very effective. It doesn't really motivate people. People who are already in that way of thinking, where they're terrified of so-called misinformation, they might be impacted by it, but they're already there. Which is why they busted out the next weapon, which is, you know, accusations of racism. And that seems to be the big one. It's why I always go back to it. I always go back to it because it's considered the ultimate evil in our society. And it doesn't matter if it's actually prejudiced. 
it doesn't matter if it's actually quote-unquote racist the simple accusation alone interpreting something and branding it racist is going to be the scarlet the ultimate scarlet letter and, and if you're not familiar which you know which means you're not really looking at things which is probably a good thing but if you've been paying attention lately basically someone released a compilation of every time Jerogan said a certain word a word that you're simply not allowed to say at all it's a word that you're never ever allowed to say these days and he didn't use this word in a mean-spirited way he wasn't referring to black people using this word he simply used the word in context and they coupled it with some jokes about him. They coupled it with like some jokes he made about going to the ghetto and what it felt like, things like that. Things that were, you know, uncomfortable jokes, I guess, but, you know, it was clearly a hit piece. And the idea wasn't that, oh, he used this word in context and you're not allowed to use it at all. It was just a video of him using the word over and over again. So it made it look like that's just, he just uses the word whenever he wants. And that, that whole thing is... I won't even use the euphemism for it. Because people sound like infants when they do that. But notice how I'm not using the word. I won't even get into that. But it's become this, this magical, all-powerful word. Now what I'm getting at here, though, is you're not even allowed to use it in context and that used to be a debate it used to be a debate that people were willing to have over whether there were times places and certain contexts where you could use it objectively in journalism in academia when quoting somebody situations like that because that's the whole point of journalism academia other objective mediums is that you can give attention to something without having meaning behind it and the idea is that everything should be visible everything can be explicit because it's clear that you are putting it in context and you're not using it in a context that is meant to be mean-spirited or destructive and that used to be a real debate, but like with seatbelts, this whole Joe Rogan thing has made me realize that that battle has been lost. The battle of context is gone. People aren't even willing to have that debate anymore. And Joe Rogan, he apologized, which, you know, he, his recent video, he, he did, you know, he did describe how he used the word he did state that I was using it in context I was quoting the titles of comedy albums I was quoting other people who used it there was a context to the way I used it he wasn't calling black people that 
he wasn't even making light of it necessarily. He was using it in context. And so he made that argument, but then he went on to apologize, which is a huge mistake. I think most people have realized this by now. Most people who pay attention to what's been going on in the culture realize that these general apologies, these public apologies, are a huge mistake. Because, I mean, apologizing is, uh, you know, it's important to be able to do that when you wrong somebody. Like, if you personally wrong somebody, apologizing to them is a sign of strength. And it's up to them whether or not to accept the apology. It's up to them whether or not to decide that you mean it or not. But this climate of public apology... Who are you apologizing to? It's very abstract. Even though it's, it might be directed at a certain demographic... You know, you're not actually addressing people. You're not addressing individual people. And as a result, people have no responsibility for accepting that apology, and that's not even what they're looking for. When people go after someone, when the mob, when a hysterical mob goes after somebody, especially in this situation where it's clearly not about one, any one thing, the situation with Jerogan, Jerogan, is clearly to control him. They're not trying to correct his views. They're not trying to make him a better person. They're not even trying to get him to take responsibility for his large audience and the things he may or may not discuss with guests on this show. That's not their goal. Their goal is to control him. Their goal is to overpower and control him. And as a result, this apology is meaningless. Because that's not even what they're looking for. And there's not even a specific person, and I would say there's not even a specific group who's receiving the apology. And as we've gone further and further into this climate where people get attacked, people get mobbed, time and time again, people who have been through that, and when you watch like what happens to people when they've been through that, they all end up with the conclusion, don't apologize. It actually gets worse when you apologize. Because the apology doesn't get accepted. And even if there's a, a certain group of people who go, oh, he apologized, good. There's another wave of people who don't accept it. And they smell blood in the water. They see weakness. And so, even though apologizing to somebody on a personal level... People will always say, oh, that, it, was, it was very big of you to do that. It took a lot of strength for you to admit you were wrong and to apologize. It's seen as a sign of strength in many cases when you do it on a personal level. And again, it's up to the individual receiving the apology whether or not they want to accept it. But still, the, the general perception is that the person apologizing, it took something to be able to do that. It took fortitude. But it's interesting when, when it's these general public apologies, people don't see it as a sign of strength. They see it as a sign of weakness. And the people who support that person feel that way. You know, people who like him, people who 
support a guy like Joe Rogan, they see it as a sign of weakness. Like, why are you apologizing? And the people, the mob, the people who don't like him, who want to overpower and control him or shut him down, they don't go, oh, that was very big of you. We accept your apology. Because they weren't looking for that to begin with. They were in a frenzy. They're filled with venom. So they see it as a sign of weakness too. But it also gives them the, the scent of blood. You know, the smell of blood is in the water now. To where they can actually go in further. He's given up ground. So even though he made the argument that, oh, I used the, that word in context, he also apologized. And so he acknowledged that context doesn't matter. By apologizing, he pretty much threw, it, he threw in the towel on the argument that there's any context that justifies use of a banned word. And it's interesting to see that because it got me thinking about what I've been talking about, about seatbelt laws and all that. Like when someone gives up ground and the battle's over, how people won't even engage in it anymore. And they'll forget that there was even an argument. And we, we've entered a phase of culture where it's just accepted and understood that you can't use certain words ever, even in context. And you won't even see people debate that anymore. So much ground has been lost that this hasn't even provoked a significant argument about the power of context. You do see people reference it, but they're not doubling down on it. They're not confident in it. Like Rogan wasn't confident enough in that argument to not apologize. He acknowledged that, oh, I said the banned word and I understand that you just can't say it ever. You can't quote people. You can't use it objectively when referring to the use of it. And we've seen that battle, you know, that was a battle that was being fought some years back. But you don't see that battle anymore. Not nearly as often. And we saw examples, you know, where teachers who quoted the word got in trouble. We even saw where that teacher used a word that sounded similarly. A word in the a teacher used a word in the English language that means stingy. He used that word. And he got in trouble. He got suspended or something to that effect. And so it's little battles like that that were lost that resulted in this situation where people won't even engage in that debate anymore. And the whole idea, you know, of banned words is very interesting because we've reached a point where very few people even hear that word in the wild. Very few people even hear that word. I'm sure it still gets used. I'm sure people still throw it at each other. But certainly far less than it was used in the past. And because you can't even use it in a quotation or in an objective, you know, journalistic or academic sense. You can't even read it in many cases. 
know, that was another example of like this battle being lost is literature that used it, getting that taken out of schools, discouraging people from even reading that stuff. Um, but, uh, you know, fewer and fewer people are actually going to come across that word in the wild. I don't think it's a stretch to say that fewer people say that, even prejudiced people, fewer of them say that. They might say it in private, but it's certainly not in use like it once was. Which is the interesting thing about progressivism, though, too, is progressivism tends to not acknowledge that. You know, one of the big complaints about progressives is they can't acknowledge progress because they're so focused on expanding their goals even further. They not only can't admit when progress has occurred, they'll even take the opposite approach and say things are as bad or worse than ever. And it's not an exaggeration. You see that a lot. You saw that in summer 2020. There was the idea that, you know, not only have we not made progress over the decades, but things are actually as bad or worse than ever before. And that fuels them. Because to stop and say, oh, progress has been made, there's this idea that that makes you complacent that makes you stop and pat yourself on the back and you're no longer working toward your utopian ideal if you acknowledge progress but it becomes dishonest like i understand the idea that if you have a goal and you stop and rest on your laurels you're not going to get as far as you want but it does become dishonest like when someone says look at all that has been done Look at all that has been accomplished. It becomes dishonest at a certain point when you deny that. Especially when you're taking things to such a pathological degree like we're seeing now. When there's this... Not even just unrealistic. I mean, I'm not even sure the word for it. But there's just this demand for higher and higher purity levels. What people call purity tests. And it actually creates an environment that is destructive, mean-spirited, dishonest, pathological. And it's, it's interesting that we have entered this time, though, where it's like certain battles have been lost... And to be around long enough, I mean, I'm not very old. You know, I'm in my mid-30s. But it's interesting to see, when, when you yourself have been around long enough to be like, oh, that battle was lost. The battle over whether or not it's appropriate, maybe not appropriate, but acceptable, to use certain words in context. That battle was lost. To the point where people won't even stand up for that argument. But the outlook is grim. I'm not entirely hopeless, but so much ground has already been lost. 
so much nuance. You know, just what we're seeing right now is really bad. And it plays into the my view of this cultural death spiral. Because you can never reach a utopian ideal. You know, I think the closest... I, I mean, one of the reasons why people are so nostalgic about the 90s isn't just because that's when millennials grew up. Because it's not just millennials, I've noticed. I've noticed older people also look back to the 90s. You know, it's not just the kids like my age where you came of age in the 90s and that was the music, those were the movies you liked. I've noticed even older generations of people look to the 90s as well. Like boomers, baby boomers. Even they have their own nostalgia for the 90s. Like they're not bitter toward every, even though they were already adults, and they have their own nostalgia for when they grew up. They don't seem very bitter. They, don't, they, they didn't seem to be bitter at the time. You know, growing up then, people's parents and everything, they seemed kind of excited by everything. Like they were excited by the movies that were coming out. Sometimes they even liked the new bands that were popular in the early mid nineties. Oh, that Kirk Corbrain, he's, you know, he's actually pretty talented. So I don't think the nineties nostalgia that, you know, kind of already peaked, but I don't think that was just limited to my generation. I don't think it was limited to Generation X. I don't, I don't think it was limited to the younger people. I think some of the older people who were around then and are still alive today look back on it fondly too. And so that seems to have been an almost, you know, it wasn't utopia by any means, but it's kind of viewed by people as this utopian era. I mean, the economy was good. Things weren't that tense. Politics were often an afterthought. Like, I don't remember people talking about politics. And I knew a lot of different types of people. You know, my dad leaned conservative. My mom was fairly liberal. My sister was a hippie who was very into that lifestyle. But, it, you know, people had opinions about what was going on. They had opinions about what the president was doing. But it didn't dominate. I think people were their quality of life was good enough to where that didn't really come into their heads and they weren't as they weren't exposed to as much either and the internet wasn't in everybody's houses that didn't come until a little bit later so i think that's a big part of it too although we didn't see the effects of the internet until quite a ways into it like you weren't seeing the true effects of the internet even in the early and mid-2000s. Like, you were starting to see it. Like, let's say 2005, I was starting to become very aware of the impact that the internet was having on the things I was interested in. The way it was changing music. The way it was changing creativity. But we weren't really seeing the effect that all of this information was having on people's brains. And the way they interact with each other and take stances. But it was around. 
But going back to the 90s, it really wasn't. And so that, if anything, was sort of this utopian era for a lot of people. Maybe not everybody. Not everybody had it good. Not everybody was happy. Not everybody was doing well. But it was this utopian period for some people, close to it. But what we're seeing now, it's all, it's all focused on this utopian ideal. We need to ban this. We need to stop this. We need to control people. We need to overpower people. Otherwise, we won't reach this utopian ideal. And other people a lot smarter than I have have pointed this out, so I can't take credit for it. But uh, some of the worst things that have ever happened in the history of humanity are based on a utopian ideal. Because when you, when you are seeking utopia, anything that gets in the way of that is seen as... I mean, anti-utopian, which is to say evil. So if you have this utopian ideal, and somebody disagrees with how to go about that, or what that should even consist of, it's very easy to brand them as evil. To think, oh, that person doesn't just disagree with me. They want to stop our utopia from developing. They want to stop our utopia from happening. They must be evil. They must want to wreak hell on earth. Just a second. I'm going to pause it here for just a sec. Alright, we're back. Split second for you is an eternity for me. But uh, the issue with that, I mean, many there are many issues with it, but the issue with that is that creates so much resentment, trying to control people, trying to force people to share your goals. And even if they have the same goal, you want them to approach it in the same exact way. It can only be this way. The amount of resentment that breeds. The amount of hatred that creates. More than was there to begin with. And you can look at what happens when someone's goals are this unattainable utopian purity. They often end up killing people. Genocides, massacres. Those don't happen because somebody says, oh, you know, we need to, we want to hurt people. That might be inside of them somewhere. But they don't justify horrible things. Governments don't justify horrible things by saying, Hey, wouldn't it be cool if we were just as destructive and evil as possible? They justify by them by saying, Hey, in order to reach this utopia, we have to break a few eggs. These people are standing in our way. I mean, you can even see this with coronavi. Of course you can. But you can even see this with, with the way coronavi has been framed. 
or not just people who are unvacked, but people who don't agree with mandates. People who don't buy in all the way with one way of thinking. They're preventing us from getting back to normal. They're the reason we have more and more variants. Those people are the reason why we can't get back to normal. And when things have been the way they've been for the last couple years, normal is a version of utopia. It's like when you're sick. Like when you're not sick, you might be like, ah, life sucks. I'm bored. I'm depressed. I can't find a girlfriend. I need to lose weight. But when you're sick, when you have the flu, even under those same circumstances, your life still sucks in your view, but you get sick, you start thinking, I just want to go back to normal. That normal life you hate becomes utopian because it's so much better than being sick. And so when people talk about getting back to normal, which is gone, getting back to normal is gone, it really truly is, but... Yeah, that was the sort of mindset people have had for the last couple of years, is that, oh, life might not have been perfect when things were quote-unquote normal, but if we can just get back there, that starts to sound utopian compared to what's been going on. And so even that is rooted in this sort of utopian vision, where then there's this idea that, oh, the people who aren't vacked the people who aren't going along with the program, the people who don't agree 100%, they're preventing us from getting back to that normalcy that seems like utopia to us now. And that's where a lot of the othering comes from. This division and othering, it comes from the idea that you're depriving us of getting back to normal. But it's not that simple, because a lot of this thinking is coupled with this other utopian vision, which is that you also have to have certain cultural values. You also have to be on board with this runaway train called progressivism. So we not only need to get back to normal as we understand it in the era of coronavirus, we also have to get back to we also have to reach this unattainable utopia because it turns out people's attitudes on coronavirus are also coupled with certain social and political beliefs. And people feel so right. They're convinced they are right, which is at the heart of the whole problem. And so it's no coincidence that a guy like Joe Rogan, you know, the big wave against him, the big attack on him was that he's spreading misinformation about coronavirus that is killing people, that is holding us back. His whole audience is just being brainwashed by him. Oh my God. Coronavirus misinfo. But when that didn't really work, and it didn't, it didn't work. Targeting him that way didn't really work. So it's no surprise that the next wave was 
He's racist. We found every time he used the banned word. Even if he was quoting Richard Pryor. Oh, we also found every time that he made it an uncomfortable joke. So it's, it's no surprise, because you can double down, and that will catch more people. Because people are far more afraid of so-called racism than they are coronavirus misinfo. Coronavirus misinfo. People are way more afraid of not even racism itself. They're afraid of being called racist. And so the people who would have said, well, Joe Rogan's just talking about coronavirus in a way that you won't hear on the news. He's just exploring other possibilities. He's getting different points of view. He's pointing out some of the hypocrisies. He might not be right, but maybe that's a necessary voice. There's a lot of people who had that approach to it. People are less afraid of that, though. But when you throw the, the scarlet letter R into it, there's a lot of people who are going to go, Oh my God, I don't know. That's too risky. It's just too risky. I don't want to get that scarlet letter on me. Because what that R really means in today's society is evil. And people use such a broad brush. They use it so generally. It's used as such a weapon that people are terrified. You know, they're completely terrified to be associated with that. Even though this is one of the most benign, middle-of-the-road guys you'll find. You know, even though there's nothing that controversial about the guy. But that's just how things have gone, you know? is that that's the next weapon, and it's not a surprise. These things are all connected. If that method doesn't work, this one will. And that is more effective. People will be more hesitant to defend him, even if they know deep down that's not the issue they're making it out to be. They know what this guy's all about. And, uh, you know, I said to a friend a few years ago, I said, you know, if they go after him, you know, when all of this stuff was ramping up, when these mobs of people, when so-called cancel culture was ramping up, I remember saying to a friend, I was like, if they go after Jerogan, I feel like that'll be a pretty radicalizing moment for a lot of people. Not that their beliefs will become more radical, but they'll be forced to pick a side. And I don't know now. You know, the sheer amount of effort, the sheer amount of... I mean, what gets me is how many people can get recruited against him. And I don't know how many of those people were his fans to begin with, but I think something that's surprised me in the last year, definitely the last year, is how many people who seem to have been his fans have turned on him. And I didn't expect that, but I also don't know 
There's also a lot of people who don't express their views. There's a lot of very normal people out there who listen to him. But just to get away from that, you know, and into the next idea, which is related, of course, is I saw something, you know, somebody who was attacking him made a list. Because there's this idea that I've seen more and more over the last couple of years where they're saying, like, he, he has way more right-wing guests. He claims to be a liberal. But he, oh, who cares that he had Barney Sanders? Who cares that he had so-and-so? He has way more right-wing guests. He's way more of a pipeline to the alt-right. He's way, he's, he's, he's far-right adjacent. And the funny thing about that is, I think I mentioned this a little while back, where when you research something, like when you're interested in a subject and you care about it and you research it, you'll find information sometimes that's not really complete. And you'll, you'll do a little informed speculation. Well, you'll, you'll say, oh, this doesn't, it's not entirely clear, but here's my theory. You'll come up with a speculative theory. And that first time you theorize about it, that first time you speculate about it, you'll be like, there's, there's some evidence that might suggest this, but I don't really know for sure. But the next time you revisit that in your mind, it's already established. So the next time you think about it, you very well might say, it is that. And you don't even do it deliberately. You've made it familiar to yourself by speculating about it the first time. So when you revisit it, you might have no more evidence, but the fact that you have a memory of yourself thinking about that makes it seem more likely. It's one of those cognitive biases. One of those cognitive biases. It's true, though. I find myself doing it. Like, if there's a subject I care about, I'll think about it, and I'll be like, huh, you know, there's not really concrete evidence for this. But there is reason for me to speculate, you know, that this, this is, you know, one theory. But then I'll think about it a month later, not because I found anything new, but I'll just think about it. And then by thinking about it, I'll be like, huh, you know, I don't, I don't even think, huh. I'll be like, oh, yeah, that's, that's what happened. That's how it was. Because I'm remembering something. I'm remembering my speculation, but when I remember it, it's already established, and I'm more convinced of it. That's what happens with liars. Like, if you've ever known somebody who lies, the first time they lie, they know they're lying. But then they'll remember their own lie. And the next time they say it, they'll be that much more convinced of it. And I've actually seen people do this. I've seen people lie about something. I've known somebody to lie about something. And then I, I've actually watched them come to believe it. And it's because they are remembering their own lie. But they're not remembering that they lied. They're just remembering that it's there. And it's already established in their mind that they said it. So they become more and more convinced of it each time they say it. So something that could have been a certain way, suddenly it was a certain way. It could be this theory. Next time you think about it, it was this theory. And you might even escalate it. 
And so that kind of relates to the way people have branded some of these figures. It's not just Rogan, it's tons of people. Where they'll initially, initially they know that they can't honestly and sincerely call them right wing. Or, or you know, racist or this or that. But they'll say something like, oh, they're adjacent. They're a gateway. Because they know they can't, in all sincerity, say that they are that thing. So they'll just say, oh, well, he's adjacent. He's a gateway. But the next time they think that thought, not only will it be more resolute, but the next time they think it, it'll be, he is that thing. Whereas the first time I thought it, he was adjacent, he was a gateway. The next time they think it, he simply is that thing. And I've, I've watched this happen with Rogan's detractors, where the argument used to be, oh, you know, he, yeah, he has a lot of liberal views, he claims to be liberal, but he's right-wing adjacent. He leans right. But then I've watched that develop into he is right. And now it's not at all uncommon to see people call him far right. Because that's really meaningless now. To call him far right. But you see it. And that's mutated too. Into It's not just that he says things that make us uncomfortable once in a while. Again, he's not a very controversial guy in reality. But that thought mutates into, oh, he's actually a white supremacist. And when an entire group of people is continually thinking that, it's not just one person coming to that conclusion on their own. When you have a whole group of people who are dedicated to that way of thinking, and they're feeding off each other, and they're in their own private feedback loops, they become that much more convinced because it's like, oh, it's not just me. It's not just me who thinks that. All these people that I pay attention to online think that way. All of my peers think he's that too. And they encourage each other to be more convinced and to again escalate it. It's a, you know, I hate to say it, but it's a hive mind effect where when someone exists in that hive mind mentality, It's not you necessarily who says, like you might be thinking, oh, he's, he sure, you know, he sure says a lot of things I don't like, or he has guests on I don't like. Oh, sometimes he has right-wing guests on who I don't like. That makes me uncomfortable, or that makes me not want to like him. But then somebody else in your, you know, little hive mind, I wish I had a better phrase, since that phrase is such a joke now. But somebody in your little feedback loop says, well, you know, he actually is right-wing. He actually is racist. You can become more convinced that way because it wasn't you. Somebody else thinks that thing that you wanted to think anyway. You wanted to think that. You wanted to brand him. But maybe you had a little more self-respect. But because somebody you know said that, you have an easier time believing it. Going back to research, like I know this from experience, that if you're into a subject with other researchers, sometimes if one of them, like you might just be speculating about something, but if one of them says, well, I actually think that's what it was, 
your speculation goes, well, somebody else believes it. So I'm just going to agree. And together, it's very easy to be convinced that it's true. Even though neither of you has any evidence of it, the fact that somebody else agrees with you convinces you. And so that's a lot of what's happening politically, socially and politically. It's not that every single person is escalating their own thinking on the subject. It's that they're feeding off the people that they pay attention to and know. And everybody's guilty of this. I'm guilty of this. Which is why you have to keep yourself in check. So much of existing in this environment really comes down to keeping yourself in check. But it's been wild to watch it happen. Like what I was going to say a second ago, somebody made a list of all the left-wing guests that he's had on in a certain amount of time and all the right-wing guests. And the right-wing side, was the column was way longer. I would say three times longer. But if you actually looked at who was on the right-wing list, there were Democrat politicians. There were people who are firmly left-wing. A lot of them were centrist. A lot of the people on the right-wing list were left-leaning centrists. But in this climate, you're either fully with us or you're against us. I know people pulling along. What is going on here? Oh, there's a, a fire truck. Three cars pulled over right next to me and I'm like, oh no, here they are. They're coming to get me. There's a fire truck off in the distance. Paranoid thinking. But uh, it was just interesting to see that where like their idea now of what a right wing person is, because right wing is like saying someone's evil. In this climate, being right wing is evil. And you could say that the right wing sees the left wing that way. I don't think that's as true. I personally don't. I might be biased. I don't think it's as true. I, I see far less othering. Like, I see the right-wing othering centrists far less. I see shaky alliances. I see shaky discourse. And I have no doubt that if the right-wing came back into cultural power, they'd be doing the same thing to centrists, because I think this has a lot to do with power and control. And we've seen where this has happened in the past. Like, I have zero doubt that if the right wing were to gain more cultural power, they would be the ones attacking centrists. But right now, they have this sort of shaky alliance. And I wouldn't even say it's an alliance in many cases. I would say they simply agree that the left has gone way too far. Bill Maher addressed that on a recent episode. He's getting called right wing. If you want to know how absurd this is, you know, Bill Maher is getting called right wing now. He hasn't changed at all. He's always just st stood firm. I have a lot of admiration for him. I've always been a fan, and he hasn't given me reason to change that. When he actually expresses himself, I don't hear anything different. And I've been following him for a long time, since I was, I don't know, like 17 years old. I certainly don't agree with him on everything, and to this day I don't. 
But he hasn't changed. But he's getting called right wing. And this list of, of, of right wing guests on Rogan, like I said, it included Democrat politicians. It included all kinds of people. But that's the idea. Is that if you are a centrist, if you are an independent, if you are all critical of the left in this climate, they will see you as the other. Not your own other. The other. There's only one other. It's a complete duality. You're either one or the other. And this is the Bhagavad Gita. This is not new. This happens. The Bhagavad Gita addressed it. When Arjuna is talking to Krishna and says, you know, this is a war between cousins. And I don't want to pick a side. Krishna says, you know, there are some situations where if you don't pick a side, a side will be picked for you. And it may not be the side that you would have preferred to pick if you had made that choice. And you can see where that's going on now. You can see where that's exactly what's been happening. Sides are being picked for you. And I've been firmly aware of where I stand in all this. But it's only been recently that I've given up. Like even into, even well into 2022, I still value diplomacy, and I do. I still value diplomacy, but I made an effort to be diplomatic because I thought there was still potential for conversation. I thought that people would still be willing to listen to each other. And the reason why I always go back to summer 2020, and the reason why I think the whole race issue is at the heart of all this, above many other issues, is because summer 2020 was when I realized officially, when I knew, diplomacy doesn't matter. You know, well-meaning discussion doesn't matter. Trying to acknowledge Everybody, everybody who's, who's thinking and acting in good faith, trying to acknowledge all of those people, even if they conflict with each other, doesn't matter. And since then, I really couldn't care less about being diplomatic. I don't argue with people. I don't fight with people. There's no point for me to do that. I'm not going to convince them. They're not going to convince me. And I would hate to convince them anyway, because that would just be me trying to control them. That would be me trying to overpower them. And if I'm not trying to do that, if I'm in an argument with somebody and I'm not trying to control them or overpower them, there's a good chance that's what they're trying to do to me. So why even do it? And if that person hasn't come to the same conclusions I have, maybe they have their reasons. I don't think they're stupid for it. But I know that I, I've cut myself off from a lot of people over the span of years. I mean, this isn't just a two-year issue. 
this is something that's been going back for many years because I never wanted to cut people off for bullshit reasons that have nothing to do with my personal interactions with them. I never wanted to be somebody who judges people or evaluates people based on their beliefs. Even if they conflict with mine. So it's not that I've cut people off for disagreeing with me. I've cut them off because these topics control us so much now. And people bring them up casually. They bring them up just in casual conversation. Maybe part of this is where I live, but it doesn't seem to be just one place. Given the role that the digital world has, given you know the grip that it has on us, it doesn't seem to exist in just one place anymore. I can say that my local environment on the West Coast is dominated by this. So the likelihood that something about this is going to come up is very high. And I mean, I've been in this situation many times where if you're hanging out with somebody who looks at their phone a lot, like you can be hanging out with somebody who you might not agree with on everything, and they'll just look at their phone, they'll look at social media, they'll look at the news. You go to the bathroom, they check their phone, and they see something that pisses them off. They see something that makes them think about these things, and they'll bring it up, maybe just to vent. And there's a lot of testing that goes on. A lot of people will test you. They'll bring something up to see how you respond. And that's not paranoid thinking. People are doing that. So as a result, I'm just like, it's just not worth it. And I know I'm not crazy. I mean, this is something that friends of mine bring up. This is something I hear about all the time. It doesn't mean everybody's crazy. It doesn't mean that everybody out there is doing this. But depending on where you live and who you know, there's a decent probability, and as a result, it's just simply not worth it. So that's the sad part about all this, is that it's alienated people from each other. And that only fuels the othering. But, you know, this is part of casual conversation now, and it's also a part of everything. You know, they, they released promotional material for the new Lord of the Rings, and I'm not going to go into that. I already exhausted the Burger King Kids Club talking points. I already kind of took that bigger picture view in the last episode, one of the last episodes, so I have nothing more to say. This isn't going to be me just commenting on that, you know, because one of the promotional materials was a character with black hands holding a staff. Clearly, they, know, they knew what they were doing. Clearly, they knew that that would generate attention. And I'm not going to comment on all that because it speaks for itself. I'd be here all day. I already t- I've talked about it enough. But what I will say is when I when I saw that those promotional materials had come out, I was like, you know what I'm going to do? I just want to see what people are saying about it. I want to see how people are reacting to that. I'm curious. And what I saw was and I, I wouldn't say that this was this is I wouldn't say that I have the total view. But what I saw was that just about everybody was focused on that. 
I saw that there were people who, like people who have a progressive view and are dedicated to that, they saw this promotional photo for the new Lord of the Rings with black hands. And their response was, oh, I'm excited about this because of that. I'm excited about the new Lord of the Rings because there is diversity. I'm celebrating this. And the people who don't see things that way, and these aren't just, you know, bigots. These aren't just, these aren't conservatives necessarily, but people who simply want Lord of the Rings to feel like Lord of the Rings. You know, and obviously I sympathize with that side. I'm biased. I have my own bias here, clearly. But what I noticed is, let's just say, people who didn't like it, people who were skeptical or cynical, they were focused on that too. So the focus was entirely on that. And I saw very few people whose response was simply, new Lord of the Rings, I'm excited. Which is what people would have said when the movies came out. When the movies came out, the argument would have been, oh, there's Lord of the Rings movies coming out. I'm excited. Or, you know, I don't know that they can capture Tolkien's vision. I'm not excited. You know, I know that when my sister saw Lord of the Rings in the theaters, she was a little bit disappointed. I don't think she disliked the movies, but she was disappointed because she loved Tom Bombadil. Like, her favorite character in the books was Tom Bombadil, which is you uh, proof that siblings aren't always the same. Because I can tell you that when I read Lord of the Rings, nothing could convince me to like Tom Bombadil. I wanted to. I thought about it more than I should have. I was like, you know, I, I'm a huge Tolkien fan. Like, I have nothing but love for what I'm reading. I have nothing but love for this man's mind. I must be missing something. I must be missing something because I, getting through the Tom Bombadil chapter was torture. And when my best friend read Lord of the Rings sometime later, he was like, yeah, I, just, I didn't say anything to him about Tom Bombadil. And he was like, yeah, just there's one thing. He's like, you know, that Tom Bombadil crap. And I was like, thank you. This is why you're my best friend. This is why we are, we're best friends growing up. Because it's like both of us are going to read that. And we're going to be like, what the fuck is going on here? But, you know, contrast that with my sister who was like, Tom Bombadil was my favorite part. I can't believe they cut him out of the movies. But that was the sort of criticism that someone would have of it. The focus wouldn't be on a superficial decision like casting. It would be like, oh, they changed something in the story that I liked about the book. But what you can see in response to these promotional materials and these casting decisions in Lord of the Rings is the response is focused on that. The people who are excited about it you know, aren't simply excited about a new Lord of the Rings TV show. They're excited because it's a progressive Lord of the Rings TV show. And I'm generalizing. I'm sure there are people out there who just aren't consumed by any of this. And they're just like, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wait and see. I'm sure there are some people who aren't sucked into this way of seeing things. But just based on what I saw, based on what I saw, people were largely focused on that. Because that dominates. You know, it goes back to years ago, 
a drinking buddy of mine who had much different views from me. And we could sometimes talk about him over drinks. And uh, I no longer believe that's possible. Not, not with this individual necessarily, but just that sort of, you know, it was a different time. Six years ago, things were different. But, you know, talking to this person over drinks, he, uh, he was recommending a comic book. And I've mentioned this before because it was a moment for me where we were talking about this comic series he was into. And he said it was like this new sci-fi series that was getting popular. A new sci-fi comic series. And he, he said he was recommending it. He was like, oh, the story's great. You know, this, uh, the art. And he was like, and it's so progressive. And I sort of stopped in my tracks because I was like, that's so interesting that that would be a selling point. It's so interesting to me that he would use that as a selling point. Because that's important to him. He was a very progressive person, po politically progressive. And so that was an important selling point to him. It wasn't even that I sat there and I said, you asshole. Oh, who cares if it's... It was, I didn't even sit there and judge him for saying that. I simply kind of stopped in my tracks and I just thought, Oh, interesting. That's important to him in this. He's evaluating it based on its politics. And I would have felt the same way if somebody said it. It's so conservative. Because I grew up in an era where like, you'd make fun of some of the themes in action movies. Like when you would watch movies when I was growing up... If it was very, like, jingoistic or anti-communist, like, you'd watch Red Dawn as a kid, and even with my redneck friend, we would kind of laugh at all the anti-commie stuff. Like, anything that was showing its cards face up like that, we would kind of make fun of it a little bit. Like, super pro-American movies, pro-American action movies. We liked them, but we'd also kind of have a sense of humor about it. Like, the appeal was not, oh, hey, this action movie, you know, it's so, uh, you know, it's so pro-military. You know, we didn't really have that approach. And so if somebody were rec recommending me a comic book, and they were, they were talking about how they liked the story, the artwork, and then they said, and it's so conservative, and they meant it in a good way, I would feel the same way about that. If that was the selling point of it. And so when this guy said, you know, this comic was so progressive, I was like, okay, that's what he, that's what's important to him. And I ended up reading it and enjoying it. But as I said before, when I brought this up, there was one point in the comic where it was too, it was too much. Because, like, as I was reading it, I thought about what he said. Like, as I was reading this sci-fi comic book, which takes place in a whole different universe. You know, it's not sci-fi. It doesn't take place on Earth. It has alien species. And one of the themes is, like, this alien man and this... Like, these two species are at war. It's almost like a Romeo and Juliet story. Where these two species are at war. And... A man from that from one species and a woman from the other species fall in love and they have a kid together. And the kid has features from both species. Like she has horns, but she also has wings. And so they have to keep the wings hidden so that nobody knows that she's 
you know, half and half. Half and half. And so that's sort of a progressive theme. Interspecies relationship. Love beats war. And there's some other little things in it. There were some other little subtle themes. I don't think of that theme as explicitly political. I don't think of that theme as explicitly progressive. You could frame it that way, but you'd have to think about it. And so when I was reading it, I was kind of thinking about what my friend said about it being so progressive. And I was kind of like, well, it's, it's done subtly. It's part of the story. It feels organic. And then a ways in, though, there was a scene where the little girl wanders into a women's shower, a women's shower room, and there's a woman with a penis, a woman with a dicky, woman with a dicky, woman with a dicky. And uh, the little girl is shocked because she's never seen that. And there's this big full-page panel where the woman with the dicky explains and it is very much an explanation, explains why that's okay. It's, it's very much PSA. It very much broke the fourth wall. Where it was like explaining to the reader why that's okay. It did not feel organic. It did not feel like part of the story. Because the story, I felt like it had been fairly subtle in its themes up to that point. And then it was just right there, full page... And the, the character was explaining why it's basically okay for a woman to have a dick. But they were explaining it to the child in the story, and you felt like the... You felt like it was being... It felt like it was addressing you. It felt like a PSA. And it pretty much was. And I was like, oh, this is what he meant. That was my reaction. I was like, oh, this is what he meant. When he said it's so progressive, it wasn't the subtly, potentially progressive themes that had been going on throughout. It was moments like that. And it wasn't like I was outraged, but it just took me out of it. And that's what I always come back to with this stuff. It takes you out of it. When something breaks the fourth wall, or it distracts you from the story itself, and that's what it did in that moment. It distracted me from what was going on. I was invested in the story, and that moment, it just, it broke the wall. It felt, it felt like that character turned to the screen, they turned to the camera. You're watching a TV show, and a character turns to the camera and starts talking to you. That's what it felt like. And so it was distracting. And you could tell, too, that the writers, the, the creators, did that intentionally. So that, it was just one of those moments where I was like, oh, okay, that's what he was talking about. And that's sort of what I see with the, the Lord of the Rings response, where it was like, the people who I saw that were excited about it, were excited about it because they could say, oh, it's so progressive. And then the people who weren't excited about it, the people who were skeptical or cynical... It wasn't that they were like, I want Lord of the Rings to be conservative. I want Lord of the Rings to be whites only. 
it was simply I don't trust this this is distracting this isn't Lord of the Rings but with the way things are framed now if you don't applaud it or if you're skeptical of these decisions that manage to manifest everywhere you know you're on a side If you're skeptical of the new Lord of the Rings, or, or even just distracted, you're on a side. A side has been chosen for you. And there are liberal people who feel that way, and someone would use that as an argument that liberal people are racist, which is one of those central themes, like the whole, I mean, what we saw a year and a half ago, where the idea, like you had liberal people out there being like, I am a racist and there is nothing I can do about it. And I'm like, this is a bizarre world we're living in. We're living in a bizarre world where conservatives are adamantly trying to prove they're not racist and liberals are just making these de declarative statements where they're like, I am a racist and it is born into me and there is nothing I can do so I'm going to repent. But there's a lot of people who see these things and it, it's apolitical to them, but they see it and they're like, you know, I... It distracts me. It rubs me the wrong way. And it's the same thing for that comic book. Where it's not like this panel was me reacting. We're like, oh, I can't possibly deal with this subject matter. Oh, this offends me. I think they very well could have worked that organically into the story. I think that... Uh, Maybe they managed to do that as it went on. But it distracted me. And it's not always something like that. You know, sometimes casting decisions have nothing to do with these social politics. I mean, I, you know, it was like when I saw that Fantastic Beasts movie. It's part of the Harry Potter lore. Harry Potter lore. Harry Potter lore. It was part of that lore, and I, you know, I'm very unfamiliar with the Harry Potter lore and stories and stuff. My girlfriend wanted to see Fantastic Beasts. She's a Harry Potter fan, and we saw it. This is years ago, and I was into it the whole time. I was like, "This is good. This is fun. This is its own story, and I'm, I'm enjoying it. It's well done." Like I've always said, like they managed to really create a world for that Harry Potter. You know, they they really managed to create a universe that even an outsider who doesn't care about it can get into. Like, I can watch one of those movies and immerse myself. It's impressive that they were able to do that, considering I don't, I'm not a fan. And so that's how I felt watching that movie. And then at the end, the bad guy, who looks different the entire movie, he's played by a certain actor, he's the bad wizard or something, he's the bad guy. They do, they, they like, un, they... It turns out that he's been using a spell to look like somebody else the whole movie. And they undo the spell at the end of the movie, and it's Johnny Depp. He was actually Johnny Depp the entire time, and he looks like today's Johnny Depp. He had, like, bleached hair, slicked back. It's like his, his outfit is like some wizard, dark wizard. So it's like, it's post-Pirates of the Caribbean Johnny Depp, pretty much. How he always looks like... Some kind of like Dave Navarro, you know, Spencer's Gifts, Hot Topic, Johnny Depp. And so it's, my girlfriend and I both just like froze. And it ruined the movie for us. 
like it sucks to let something like that ruin it. And it wasn't like it actually did anything. It was just simply the decision to cast him was so distracting. It, it broke the fourth wall. And that's a version of this same thing. That's a completely apolitical, asocial version of the same thing I'm talking about. Which is that like, when they revealed the bad guy who looked completely different, played by a completely different actor, was actually Johnny Depp at the end looking exactly like Johnny Depp, not, you know, it, it was just so distracting. You know, it took you out of it in, entirely. And that's the sort of, the same feeling. The feeling of that is identical. The feeling I got in that comic book, identical. The feeling I get when I see what's going on in, in entertainment, it's all identical. And when you see that that's the same conversation going on in every part, you know, these are the themes that are playing a role in everything we do. It's a part of every discussion. You can even see it in Canada. Where, and you know, and it almost seems, it's, a cons it's almost like, uh, it's easy to get conspiratorial about it because you see it shift around the same time. Like the same week that they start calling Joe Rogan racist because just saying he's spreading misinformation isn't working. Just calling him a misinf misinformation dealer isn't working quite the way they want it to. So you start calling him racist. So you double down on that. You know, it's interesting to see that happen in Canada during the same week where these truck protesters are protesting VAC mandates. And there's some bad people among them. A couple bad people, maybe. But you see where, you know, Justin addresses it by saying, you know, I denounce the, you know, the, the racist, misogynistic, Islamophobic, transphobic, whatever, who are protesting. But, but does it in such a way that he paints the entire protest as that. It's a way of discrediting the entire movement. Of not just being like, oh, I disagree with these people because they are spreading misinformation and putting other people's lives at risk by not getting vaxxed. Instead, it's, oh, no, 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 they're racist. They're, you know, bigots. They're prejudiced. Something that's actually unrelated to what they're doing. But it's a way of branding them as evil. It's a way of making sure that nobody has any sympathy for their cause. And when you see them do that to Rogan the same week that they do it to the truckers, you know, it's a, it's a card that they've used before. But you can see that that's the way things are now. They're doing it at the same time. They're using the same card at the same time. Do I believe it's all a conspiracy? No, I believe it's an easy card to pull. And the idea, the reason you pull that card is power and control. And we know that right now, if you want power and control, that's what you do. If certain people aren't doing what you want, that's the card you use. That's the card you use to beat them. And even though, you know, many people will be like, well, it's cheating. 
That's dishonest. That's not one of the rules of the game. They don't care about the rules of the game. Because they have enough people, there's enough momentum. There's enough people who agree with their aims, who agree with their utopian ideal, that they will say, nope, it's legit. There's a large enough audience who will see somebody pull that card, and even though the person who's getting that card pulled on them will say, well, that's not even, that's not even part of the deck. Those aren't even the rules of the game. There are enough people who want that person to win so bad, the person pulling the card, that they will say, nope, it's legit. And that's why the outlook is grim. Because they're playing by their own rules. And if enough people believe in those rules, those simply become the rules. Because the goal is to win. For the same reason anybody cheats at a game. The goal is to win. Not to play a good game. And so that's a big difference between people's approaches to what's happening. And personally, I just want no part in any of it. But it's, any, it's, it's everywhere. It is truly everywhere now. And it does feel like that, you know, there's no, um, there's not going to be any relief from it. You know, there's not going to be any relief from it. It does feel like a death spiral to me. I know somebody would say that's alarmist. But it makes for misery. It makes for resentment. It's not going to make for utopia. It's going to make utopia so far away that just going back to the way things were in any form is going to be more utopian than what we have to look forward to. So what we can hope for is for it to all fall apart. Not to reroute. Not to choose any other goal right now, except just hopefully this falls apart. You know, it's sort of, this it's Ragnarok. The only way new life is going to grow from the blackened soil is for everything to be wrecked. Everything has to be destroyed for new life to grow. Which is the story of Ragnarok. That apocalypse isn't just everything coming to an end. Everything has to be destroyed in the battle. The soil has to be black for that new life to grow. And I think that's true for us on a cultural level. I think it's true for us on a creative level. In order for things to be organic and meaningful again. Because that's all I want. I don't have political aims. I want things to feel organic and meaningful again. And that's so elusive right now. I know, you know, some of that might just be me. But it seems to be a common complaint. And people who have every perspective seem to feel that way. But I think things are going to have to either fall apart or be destroyed for us to get that. For that new life that's organic and meaningful, I think some destruction is going to have to happen. Not violence, just... This is all going to have to be wiped away. This is going to have to reach its logical conclusion. Because rerouting, walking backward, all of that doesn't seem to work anymore.
But what gives me hope is the idea that new life can still grow out of anything and everything. And so I look forward to that. This land is mine God gave this land to me This brave, this golden land to me And when the morning sun Reveals her hills and plains I see a land where children